a very warm welcome from St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Paula Gooder and I'm the Canon Chancellor here at St Paul's, which means that I oversee the theology and learning that takes place within the cathedral. We are delighted to welcome you to our next in our online conversations series. Today our conversation is about race and gender in the church and I will be talking to Chinny MacDonald, Rosemary Mallet and Lucy Winkett. Our conversation as usual is wide ranging, looking at what it means to be a woman in the church, being a woman with a public profile, what it means to be a woman who is in the image of God. We also touch on subjects like whether it's right for the church to continue to apologise for race within the church. We hope you enjoy this conversation enormously. It's wonderful to have you with us, Rosemary, Lucy and Chinny. Thank you so much for joining us for this conversation this morning. As we begin, I wonder if you would mind just beginning by introducing yourselves to the audience so they get a sense of who you are and why you are particularly interested in this subject. If we can start with Rosemary. Hi, I'm Rosemary Mallet. I serve as the Archdeacon of Croydon in the Diocese of Southwark. If I wanted to define myself to anyone, I would say I'm a proud Barbadian and I'm a mother to Jane, previous academic, now serving as a priest for the Church of England. But myself, I would say I've been an activist on issues of race and gender, probably since I was about 13. And I would say that they continue to mark how I am and who I am as I struggle for representation and recognition of black people and women. Thank you, Rosemary. Um, Lucy, would you like to introduce yourself? I'm Lucy Winkett. Uh, I'm currently Rector of St James's Church in Piccadilly, um, which is in the centre of London. Um, before that, uh, I, I was ordained quite young. I was ordained in my in my 20s. And, uh, and I guess my uh, involvement or interest in this kind of conversation comes from two places, really. One is that I trained at Queen's College, Birmingham. And so as part of the uh, ordinary theological training. Um, as a white student, I was taught black theology. And I think that's, um, that was quite unusual at the time. And I think, uh, sadly, is quite unusual now. Um, and so that's been something that I've tried to reflect on as I've, uh, as I've gone through my ordained life. And I, I did find myself at, when I went to St Paul's Cathedral, really, as a, as a bit of um, a face uh, for the Church of England as for the, that attracted the opposition to women's ordination. So I had a rather um, kind of crucible experience, I would say, for a few years in my late 20s and early 30s, where that was extremely sharp, um, a sharp thing for me in terms of gender. Um, so I think that's probably that's probably enough for me. <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. And Chinny. I'm Chinny MacDonald. Um, my day job is as head of public engagement at Christian Aid, but I'm also a writer and broadcaster, formerly um, a journalist. Um, but I also studied uh, theology at Cambridge. So interestingly, I was um, I was a black student, but taught predominantly, probably exclusively, white white theology. Um, but I'm sure we'll touch on that later. Um, I'm also um, a wife and mum to a an energetic three year old. Um, I'm on the boards of Greenbelt and Christians and Media, and also on the leadership team of my church, the Bear in South East London. 
Thank you, Chinny. When we were talking about this event, we had in our minds quite clearly a previous event that we did at St Paul's um, a year or so ago in a discussion about we need to talk about race, which is the wonderful book by Ben Lindsay. And we're conscious that in a way this stands on the shoulders of that event. So I wondered, Chinny, if you would mind by beginning to remind people who weren't, well, tell people who weren't there and mind, remind people who were there um, what we talked about in that event and why this event builds on that in some ways. So it was an amazing event. Um, uh, there were hundreds of people packed into St Paul's um, and it was amazing for me to um think that actually people wanted to talk about race um, and there hadn't been necessarily much space in which uh, black Christians um, could talk to a predominantly white audience about some of the issues um, that we face. Um, so we talked uh, about a whole range of things. We each, um, so it was Rosemary and myself, plus Governor B and Ben Lindsay, the author of uh, the book, we need to talk about race, um, talking about the black experience in white majority uh, churches. Um, about white theology. We talked about our own, own backgrounds as people of different ages and different genders who come from different uh, denominations as well. Um, and I think one of the things that Rosemary and I touched on in that um, event was um, how the experience of black men is distinct from the experience of black women um, in the church. So there is the, there's the issue of race, but then it, the, the intersectionality of, kind of race and gender. So uh, this conversation is particularly focusing in on that um, and bringing in not just uh, black women's voices, but white women's voices as well. And, and I don't think there have, has been much space to um, for black women and white women to have conversations about what it is to be a woman in the church. Thank you, Chinny. Rosemary, is there anything else that you'd like to chip in on for your reflections from the Ben Lindsay event? I would like to say, everything that Chine said, but also that it was not just that it was a majority white audience, but black people, um, lay people, ordained people, people who hoped or or even you know dreamed of being ordained, turned up for that as well, because they also wanted to hear and to also be heard and to have side conversations. So it was really just such an amazingly powerful um, experience to be both uh, a presenter on there but also to be able to listen and to learn from from others about their experiences. Thank you Rosemary. I've heard you say quite a lot Rosemary that when it comes to it much of the church is held by women and this seems to be quite an important place to begin our conversation today. Can you tell us a little bit about what you mean by that? When I um was an academic. Um, I, I lived in Africa for a long while and there the saying was always that women hold up more than half the sky. We'll hear later the fact that I wasn't actually any part of the church at that time. When I returned um, to, to work and, and then later to minister to the, in the church, I realised that churches throughout the world, in Africa, in the Caribbean, in this country, women are often the majority of people who are amongst the worshippers, women are the cleaners, women make the tea, women are those the ears and the eyes and listen to the, the pastoral needs of the people. They hold up and they maintain so much of what we call church, so much of what we call family in the church. And yet in so many of those places, women are not in the leadership. And somewhat amazingly, they seem to be made absent 
in a space in which they are very, very much present. Yeah, no, I think that's very interesting indeed. Um, Ginny and Lucy, have you got any reflections on that from your own experiences? Ginny, go ahead. Yes, so I, I, um, one of the things that I was reminded of when Rosemary talked about this St Paul's event um, was actually the number of black women who came up to me afterwards and said thank you for giving voice to our experience. Um, and one of the things that I've talked about in that, in, in that event, and um, which I've talked about in um, my book, God is Not a White Man, is the fact that um, black women are quietly leaving out of the back door of churches because often what they see at the front is um, white supremacy um, and patriarchy. And increasingly for black women, that they're just not going to stand for that um, and they're not going to want to be in those spaces. So um, lots of women at the end of that event were saying to me, um, I've left my church, um, I'm still a Christian, still love Jesus, but um, I don't want to be part of the church anymore. I know that that's not necessarily a new conversation, but it's definitely something that's happening and that the church needs to watch out for. Thank you. Lucy, anything from your experience? Yeah, I think there's a uh... So if, 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 I'm, if I want to trace, you know, the last 25 years, say, that I've, I've been ordained in the church, there's been, I think, for, for white church leaders, there's been a necessary um, reckoning. I, I mean, that, that, you know, this needs to continue, clearly, but a necessary reckoning to say that it's not enough for a white preacher to, for example, um, quote a black theologian or to make sure that the sermon illustrations are... Um, are uh, a, a black voices speaking with authority, which is kind of where I guess the training probably was those years ago. That simply, I mean, you know, it's, it's a it's a brick in the wall, half a brick in the wall. But actually, it's much more important that um, that people in, in a congregation who are black see someone who represents them at the front speaking um, very directly. And I think that's been also a that's been a bit of a um, a shift in in thinking, I guess, for training of, of white church leaders, that it, it used to be that there could be a, you know, you, you could say that that was an appropriation of black experience. I mean, you could say it was really, uh, it was really not acceptable at, at any level. Um, but I think now it's much more important to say um, for, for white leaders, it's not, it's simply not enough to, uh, to, to think that you're being inclusive. Um, and that's, you know, that's on gender and race and disability and sexuality, all those intersections um, of identity that the church is grappling with at the moment. I just, can I just add that when we say the church, and I had this conversation with Ben, the church, there is so many understandings of what is church. I was reading in The Guardian today, Eve Pitts, who says very clearly, she did not leave the Anglican church because there was a fight there. But she did not join the Black Pentecostal church because the patriarchy there was one and that was so judgmental that she did not want to be part of that. So I think we also need to recognize that, that when we talk about the church, if we want to speak about the Anglican church or the white mainstream church, let's do so. But also recognize that the church has many colors and many shades and that even in those spaces, when we talk about gender, we're also talking about challenges that can occur in those spaces also. And I, and I would add that it's just interesting with Lucy talking about um, 
it's almost you were saying that quoting back theologians was something that you know we used to do. I'm in so many church spaces where people would never even think about quoting black theologians because they're, they're just not in that space. So in some some ways, some parts of the church are way ahead in terms of that inclusivity. Um, and some are very much behind and very much just beginning these conversations um, as if they were, were new. Right. The other question I'd like just to kind of start with, Lucy, is um, the whole question about being a public Christian woman. You alluded to it in your introduction, in that, in a sense, you became the face of women in the Church of England when you were at St Paul's. What does it feel like to be a public Christian woman? Uh, I think, I mean, my, my absolute gut reaction is I'm really glad that there wasn't social media um, in the late 90s. Um, I mean, it, uh, I think I think if you I mean, I've, I've done, you know, workshops, as I'm, I'm sure those listening to this call have have led workshops on uh, on, on feminism or on, on gender and Christianity. Um, and and quite often, if you ask people who are public Christian women, they they can't really think of many. Um, and the ones that they think of are things like um, um, soap opera characters or or. Um, or people who, de- or de- I mean, quite literally, women who don't exist, um, or or women who who are long dead, you know, famous saints or or, or whatever. And I think um, for me, I, I just I just speak absolutely personally. It was it was utterly uh, bewildering and kind of a lacerating experience. I described it at the beginning as a kind of crucible. I felt like um, um, the 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 kind of the vitriol that came up. Um, uh, you know, and people wrote letters that I I can't imagine they'd be proud of what they what they wrote. You know, the day after they wrote it, but that there was a kind of violence and a a really extraordinary um, energy about the about the opposition, which I I just didn't understand. And I suppose still, you know, sometimes these years later, if I look if I look back at, back at it, I it it is it is still quite a a shocking thing to reflect on and. Um, but but I think what it was was a kind of um, um, it was almost an involuntary, and I don't mean to let anyone off the hook there, but it felt like an institutional involuntary spasm. You know, just that this is wrong, this looks wrong, and so all the stuff about menstruation and um, and celebrating the Eucharist and the difference between the blood of Jesus, which cleanses, and the blood of women, which dirties. You know, it was really awful. Some of that, some of that stuff, that, the reflection that came up, um, and and I think that sometimes, if if you really do step into the public space as a woman and as a Christian, and I w- I would say obviously as a white woman and a Christian, uh, I I have a place. I'm sure we'll come on to this. I have a place to go into my whiteness, which means that I can, I guess, step away from that crucible. Um, if I choose to, there, there's a privilege built into that, um, and but which I didn't recognise at the time. So I became very, uh, I became very hurt, and you know, uh, um, but I also became s- uh, stronger. I would say, um, having been in that kind of crucible and having been identified as female, and that female was utterly in your ontology wrong to stand in that space. That was that was an extraordinarily powerful experience. 
It's really striking to hear um, Lucy's story. Um, Rosemary, I imagine that you've had similar experiences, but um, and Lucy alluded to the issue about being white and black, and I wonder if you've got anything that you want to chip in. So fascinating. And, and I obviously, I heard Lucy's story as I was coming through. However, my context is completely different. Now, I fought all those battles when I was a black academic because I fought them because I was at the Institute of Development Studies at Sussex working on issues of gender and development when the whole issue was not accepted and we had to fight to even get it onto the curriculum. And the same when I moved to the Caribbean to work on issues of women in development and then gender and development. And people didn't want to accept the phrase gender. And, you know, at one point, the in the papers, we were being told to dim our bright lights, that we were outshining the men, marginalizing men, emasculating them, and we ought to step back. So I fought those battles as an academic. Let me say, and I was going to say that somehow, as a black woman sometimes, or maybe a black person, but as a black woman, you can often be treated a bit as a trophy. So when I was coming through, towards training for ordination, I was actually so supported uh, by my church, they really wanted me to become ordained. They wanted me to be one of their leaders. It was something for them as a matter of pride to have a, a black woman uh, coming from them and, and representing them to a large extent. And I came from a suburban church in, in uh, South London. What was interesting for me when I became a public, a public Christian woman was when I put my collar on and walking down the street and the way in which people responded to that collar and that recognition of me as a woman who uh, served God in a public way, there was differentiation in the representation, uh, in, in the reception. For, for some people, they would look at me and think, well, it can't be, it can't be, she's black, why is she wearing a collar? First she's female and then she's black, that doesn't compute. And for others, Often black people, they would say, which Pentecostal church do you belong to? And when I said the Church of England, I was treated almost like a traitor. So lots of different ways in being a public um, Christian woman and a black public Christian woman. But I see it as part of what I would say as being um, both exposed, but for me, serving God in the way that I try to do, it's also quite natural. So I kind of take it as it comes as a gift and also a recognition of the pain and the trauma that it brings for some people. Ginny, Rosemary and Lucy are speaking as ordained women and we both are lay women. Um, do you have reflections on this from a, as, as a lay woman, um, but nevertheless still a very public Christian woman? Yeah, so I'm really, I'm, I'm realising that, um, Oh, yeah, I'm fascinated to hear what it, what it must be like being an ordained woman uh, going through um, the process of the past few years um, and people seeing you and thinking, having that ick factor that, that you shouldn't be there and that, how hard that must have been. And um, I think for me, um, whether or not it is in the public Christian space um, or in various um, contexts in which I'm in, I do have that sense of being an imposter. I, I do feel quite vulnerable. Um, because that even that label of a public Christian, you realise, um, I mean, I, I'm not perfect. And I think there is, um, for women, I feel like there is there are so many pressures to be perfect in how we speak, uh, in our attitudes and what we 
what we look like, how we dress, our posture. And I was just reflecting on um, years ago, I think, Lucy, I heard um, was it a, a Radio 4 profile on you. Mm. And um, I mean, I know you are lovely, but it was, you know, <laughs> it was this... Um, I thought, what what would it be like if you hadn't been so lovely? If you had been, um, you know, forthright in the way that some some um, men are, or you were very, um, yeah, if you were a different different kind of um, woman, and the the criticism that you would face because of that. Um, so there is that sense of women having to be um, just you know perfect kind, nice, helpful, um, and when you potentially aren't those things and the criticism that you might face. I think I'd also just touch on a couple of other things. One is social media and one is um, our physicality. Um, and I think we as women um, can't escape our physicality. And I think that we're in certain spaces in which we're thinking about all sorts of things um, that men might not be. So I'm, I'm reflecting on the first time I did Thought for the Day on Radio 4. And I was eight months pregnant and I um, had morning sickness the whole way through um, the nine months. And I took a sick bag in uh, and I had this added pressure of kind of doing a live radio broadcast on Radio 4 while not wanting to be sick. Um, and <laughs> I thought, oh, there's, you know, there's this added pressure for, for women. I think social media as well um, is fascinating slash devastating because um, in various places in which I um, might speak on the radio or write articles, I'm finding increasingly um, that I'm facing, I guess, criticism, but the criticism is often of a kind that is, um, that I wonder whether uh, a middle-aged white man would get if he had said the same things as me. And the criticism often comes from kind of faceless um, white men who like to tell me how I'm wrong or to like to tell me how um, they know better than me on a subject that you know I've written a book on. And I find that really uh, an interesting challenge that a lot of w women in the public eye are facing. If you look at the amount of criticism on social media, death threats, vile, um, vile insults that people like Diane Abbott receive on social media and how women in general receive those as well. So um, that's definitely something that um, is of this time and quite painful. Thank you, Chinny. While you were talking, I was thinking about your book, God is Not a White Man, and in it you talk a lot about the importance of women seeing that they're made in the image of God. Could you mm. tell us a little bit about why that's so important to you and why you felt so, uh, it was so important to write about it in your book? Um, I think uh, we've obviously come such a long way in terms of um, the place of women in the church but there is such a legacy of um, patriarchy and anti-womanness, misogyny, um, that there has been for centuries. So you, if you look at some of the, the words that the uh, founding church fathers or um, early uh, history philosophers used about women, and there was almost this idea that woman was, um, that the, the default human was a man, and women were um, often second class, but also um, faulty in some way. And our bodies were faulty. And, and I think we haven't um, recognised enough um, the legacy of that even till today. And um, I, I think that obviously um, women can now be ordained, women can be church leaders in most spaces. Um, but there is often this kind of hangover of those thoughts um, 
in, uh, in people's minds. I write in the book about the first time I encountered um, an image of God um, that looked a little bit like me, and it was in the book called The Shack by William Young. I don't take my theology from The Shack, but, um, but I remember reading that um, description of um, the Holy Spirit as an Asian woman, um, Jesus as a Middle Eastern man, and God as a, a curvy black woman. And in the film of The Shack, uh, God is played by Olivia Spencer, um, who was in The Help, the film Help. And I realized in that moment um, how profound it was to see myself reflected in the image of God and realized that actually for all of my life, um, most of the images that I had seen of God and of Jesus were of um, white men. Now, although we might know intellectually, of course, um, that God is not male and that God is not white, uh, if you walked into most churches or most cathedrals, um, you would think that um, God is white. And that white supremacy is pervasive, not just in the in the UK Christian context, but in various um, contexts uh, in Christian homes in the global south. So in Nigeria or in Asian countries, um, you might see images of Jesus as white. Now, what that says to us is that um, maleness um, and whiteness is closer to godliness uh, than than, than I am uh, as a black woman. And it's almost like, the, you know, the space belongs to white men and I'm kind of let in to that. Whereas we know um, that God is neither male uh, nor white. So how can we recapture those images of, of who God is in a way that includes um, the rest of us? Do you have any thoughts, Rosemary, um, listening to Chinny talk like that? I was confirmed at age 35 very late, but, you know, I left the church because of its history entwined with colonialism and slavery. And when I returned to it, it was, um, you know, a very, it was a very deliberate choice to do so. At confirmation class, the, um, the leader asked me, what's your image of God? I, I will never forget this. And I drew a cloud with the sun coming out behind it. And my image of God was the light that always shines, not necessarily in the darkness because it wasn't a dark cloud, but always shines through all the struggles and the challenges that may appear as clouds on our horizons. And so that image is, for me has been very powerful. And so whereas I absolutely um, understand every, every uh, word of Chinese book and what it means when women have been subjugated, oppressed through all of the the, the centuries and made a second class citizens and God being raised high, not simply on the cross, but in the sky as being a male image and a white male image for many people. I feel for me personally, I was able to move away from that because of my own um, understanding of history, my studies of uh, black history, and then my own empowerment because of my activism um, in my life. So while I absolutely understand it, for me personally, it was one image that I was able to escape imposing on myself as I was coming back to an understanding of what it means to be a person in the church. I do feel, however, that it's important to say that women are made in the image of God because so many people throughout the world whether we're talking about the uh, Euro-American countries or we're talking in black majority countries throughout the world, 
women are absent from that image of God. I absolutely agree. Lucy, have you got thoughts? Um, just a couple of things, probably, to say. I mean, I think we, yes, it's it's true that in in the UK and some other countries, um, women are able to uh, take up leadership roles and to and to interpret scripture. Maybe I can put it like that: interpret scripture publicly with their communities, which is a very powerful um, and a privileged place um, to be in, in a community. But out of the two billion Christians in the world, nearly all of them male or female, will not see, will not experience a woman in leadership in their communities. Um, and I, so I think it's so, sometimes we can, you know, and certainly this is the case for white women sometimes, there's a, there's a, um, there's a sense that, well, you know, that there could be a woman, uh, a rector, um, archdeacon, you know, bishop, archbishop of, archbishop, archbishop of Canterbury, for example, there's, there's nothing to stop women um, um taking up those spaces, but actually globally, um, in terms of the dominant denominations of Christianity, that's, that's really not the case. And that ecumenical conversation is a difficult one, is a difficult one to have and is often avoided. Um, and I think the second thing I would say is, is that of language. So, you know, it, it's very easy for me to sit here and say, well, God is obviously not male. God doesn't have something intrinsically masculine. Mm. But if I refer to God as she, in, in church, quite often, I mean, not in my current context, thankfully, because there's a, there's a great congregation here, but, you know, often I have, I've tried it out. I've tried to be a little bit, just to say, let's sit lightly to some of this language that's ossified. It's as if it's a statue, it's as if it's a statue, that it's completely unbreakable, this language, but it can't be because language is all penultimate in itself and God's reality is beyond this. So, but to try to play with that language and to refer to God as she, causes all kinds of mayhem quite often in a in liturgy so i think language and image um are, are incredibly are incredibly important and and you know just again speaking as a speaking as a woman to say that god is female is, is i mean god is neither male nor female but to refer to god as female as a as a way into that uh discussion is you know from time to time is confronting because it means that God is not other from me in a way that I've been able to keep God at a distance sometimes. Um, God, God is very close to me. God is, God is, you know, connected to me in a new way. And that can be quite confronting. Um, and I think that some of the disturbance and distress that some women felt about the ordination of women was to do with that God being brought very close and that that was simply not you know not our experience for generations so that there's quite complex things going on i think with language and and imagery um and if you and if you place it at the heart of the eucharist for example those debates they can be very very tricky to for people to to handle um, what you just said, Lucy, reminds me, um, one of the good things of social media is you can get into some fascinating conversations with people you never would normally get into conversation with. And uh, not long ago, I was um, conversing with a reform rabbi on um, all of uh, gender pronouns for God. And apparently within the reform tradition in Judaism, um, they never will give a male or female um, pron gendered pronoun for God. So um, she tweeted, um, the pronoun for God is God. 
And I was very struck by it. And we got into this conversation where apparently that's entirely normal now within the reform movement of Judaism. It makes me realise that we've got quite a way to go in many of our different kinds of churches um, when we're thinking about God and pronouns. Rosemary. I just wanted to say that Lucy's so right that we have to, all of us, decolonize and deconstruct our own internal understandings because we are the products of the culture that has brought us to where we are. And so as, and as much as we find ourselves trying to, you know, um, change the culture, change the language, change the dynamic, we're also having to change ourselves. And that is what is tricky. So as Lucy was saying that, I was thinking, you know what, I always say God is he. It's comfortable. It, it's, it sits within an ease for me. I don't have an image of God as a man, a white man, but it's easy to use that pronoun he because it fits with the, within the whole line of my upbringing and, and the Bible I, I, I read and the way in which those words are constructed. So it is about language, it is about deconstruction, and it's going to be, as you rightfully say, a long time. And I think women, this is what I found when I worked in, in, in developing countries, women as the bearers of the culture, because so many people expect that women through um, their, not, not just childbirth, but through teaching of children, often mostly in developing countries, it's the woman that passes it on. Women as the bearers of that cultural traditions are often the ones that hold on to the cultural traditions much more strongly um, because they're expected to. So the men can kind of say, um, I'll leave that to the women to do while they're not changing but somehow they'll then blame the women for not wanting to change. So I think, as Lucy says, it's multi-layered, multifaceted, but it also starts from within ourselves as how we reconstruct ourselves also. And just one last thing on that kind of, that language point, it's absolutely true. And in my book, I deliberately decided not to use male pronouns for, throughout my book, even though it's what I've done all my life. And it was awkward and it, I had to think about things. I had to reshape things a little bit. Um, but I, I, I felt like I couldn't be writing a, a book that was called God is Not a White Man while referring to God um, as he. So that is a new kind of uh, practice for me. And it, obviously the he, the male pronouns slip out um, because we're talking about a lot of years of having um, described God uh, as male. I think what what people don't question enough is um, uh, biblical translation and the fact that um, the Bible, some Bibles that we read are translated in certain ways because um, the men who were translating it were translating it within patriarchal uh, societies. And um, so often if we look back at the original Hebrew, what are the um, ways in which God is described? And Will Gaffney, Dr. Will Gaffney has done a lot of work on this. And I love um, her um, description of, you know, uh, the, the creation story in which uh, God in certain parts is described in the masculine and, and in other parts in the feminine and this idea of the mother love of God and all these kinds of uh, feminine and um, ways of viewing God which I think are um, beautiful um, and that we should recapture. Thank you Ginny, please do. Lucy. Sorry I don't want to delay us on this but I, I just had this really sobering experience recently taking a taking a workshop with some uh, there were some some Christians in their early 20s. OK, so um, we were talking about um, the Holy Spirit. And I said, OK, Ruach in the Hebrew is a you know, fem feminine ending. The spirit you could refer to as she. Oh. When that's translated into New Testament Greek, it's pneuma, which is a neuter noun. So you could say that's it. 
but then it's translated into the language of the church, spiritus, which is a masculine noun, which is translated into English, he. So isn't this outrageous that the spirit has, you know, gone from the original, as it were, um, all through those, and, and is, when we're now using the word he because it's translated from Latin. And I was expecting outrage because I, I am constantly outraged by this. <laughs> I was waiting for the outrage. And they all said, oh, that yeah, trans, non-binary, fine. Yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, yeah. conversations changed. And that was so good for me. That was so good for me because as a, you know, as a, as a kind of a, a battling old feminist, as it were, I was really waiting for this polit political analysis that, that I had had to fight against, as it were. They were more comfortable with it um, mm. just because it was more fluid. Yeah, it, the, the theology was more fluid. And that, I found that thrilling. But the reality is that most of the church is, isn't, doesn't yeah. seem to be there. It isn't there. But it was good for me to challenge myself to, you know, to move on, basically. Um, you've raised Hebrew, Lucy, so I can't resist. Um, what's really interesting about Ruach in the Old Testament is sometimes it's male and sometimes it's female. Um, and you can tell by the plural ending. And connected to what you've just said, that makes it utterly fascinating. That Ruach, okay. I mean, sometimes Ruachot and sometimes Ruachim, um, which are female and male um, plural endings. And that kind of suggests that actually the Hebrew was way, way be before us, that actually <laughs> the, the fluidity of the gender of the spirit is right there in the Hebrew text, which is rather lovely, isn't it? Brilliant, brilliant. Paul doesn't that take us back to Genesis where God created yes. them? Yes. In his own yes, image. Indeed. Male That's and right. female. Male That's and female. Yes, exactly. In, yes. In, yes. In the image of God, not his image, in the image mm -hmm. of God, they were created. Yeah. Male yeah. and female. Absolutely. So it and, just yeah. yeah. And doesn't God, it doesn't say God created a man and a woman, but mm -hmm. he created them in um, the image of God. Yeah. Male absolutely. and female, which is kind of a really important distinction. Um, shall we move on to the question of feminism and womanism? You've mentioned, Lucy, um, that you're an old battling feminist, and so am I. Um, but there's a really important um, kind of additional movement that some people I'm, um, have not heard of. And I wonder if you just want to reflect a little bit about the influence of womanism on our thinking. Um, and if Lucy kicks off and then Rosemary and Ginny kind of come in later on. Mm. Um, I mean, I guess most people, yes, have, have heard of feminism, might understand that that's a belief that um, that the genders are fundamentally equal, socially, economically, um, politically. So it's about equality. Um, womanism is really um, to foreground and centre um, the experience of women of colour in in a direct challenge to the fact that feminism, as as you know, articulated possibly most. Um, most in kind of a North American um, sensibility through the through the 20th century and a European sensibility has simply ignored the experience of women of colour. Um, and so it hasn't recognised that intersectionality. Um, and I used to teach feminist theology at the North Thames Ministerial Training Course and would always have a, have womanism involved in that in that course. And one of the um, one of the quotations that that um, for me, brings it to life is uh, uh, the novelist Alice Walker, who is who is uh, you know um, credited with uh, coining that phrase womanism. That Alice Walker said that womanist is to feminist as purple is to lavender, and that that's a that's a, a strong um, challenge to uh, to white women who want to uh, state the equality across genders, but have simply not taken enough account or sometimes no account 
of the experience or the particular experience of women of women of color. So womanism is is incredibly important in in challenging that. Rosemary, um, have you been influenced by the womanist movement? Absolutely. Um, I would say, I mean, Lucy's absolutely right that feminism is a kind of struggle against patriarchy and womanism is, is a struggle against patriarchy and white supremacy. Um, and as a black woman, you're constantly having to reevaluate the situations and, and, and how you can operate within spaces because of the color of your skin. Um, so womanism in that, in that understanding for me of the context of our lives is so very different. And the ways in which black people experience the world is so very different. And so as a black woman, I will experience the world so differently than a white woman. And that needs to be understood and um, recognized and, and enabled into the space. But I just want to say, one of the ways in which I remember as a, as a feminist stroke, then womanist, um, that was important for me was, um, uh, it's mentioned in, in uh, Chine's book, she talks about Ntozoke Shange's uh, book um, for, colored, for Colored Girls. When it came out, I was an uh, uh, advocate ad and for black rights on campus at Sussex University. And we had a students association, an African students association, which was uh, extremely uh, confrontational to the institution. The women said we were going to put on the play. We had done Didankamathi as a play about the Mau Mau, and the women said we we're going to put on the play uh, for colored girls. The men of our group refused and banned us from doing so. At that point, feminism and womanism for me collided because it was a struggle against both patriarchy of male black patriarchy and white male patriarchy and also the whole way in which white supremacy had made us as a group of people feel that we were not allowed to speak our truth into, into the public view because of the way in which the public view would then treat all of us differentially. And that's where the men were coming from. If we put this out there, that in our, in our grouping, there are these kinds of challenges, white society is going to then um, even more disempower us. And so they then wanted to disempower the women's voice. Complex, challenging. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Chini, would you um, identify as a womanist or is it a kind of language that wouldn't be something that you would use? So um, Robert Beckford um, describes my book as um, a womanist manifesto, I think. Um, um, and womanism isn't something that I um, read uh, studying theology at Cambridge, but I part of what I realised is I'm increasingly being influenced by womanist um, theology. Um, but I also think that it is the natural um, consequence of a black woman doing theology because and that is the lens through which I see the world as a black woman. And I think for a long time, theology has been the work of white European males um, and the kind of traditional texts and the traditional theologians, the people that are quoted, um, tend to be white men. But I think theology, um, by its very nature, has to be contextual because God 
is other. And so therefore our understanding of God and our views about God have to be through the lenses in which we um, kind of go about and operate in the world. Um, so my, um, my book, my writing and my theology is womanist theology um, because I'm, I'm writing and thinking through the lens of a, of a black woman. Um, and I think that um, it's been amazing to have a term for that um, and to read more womanist theologians um, because of that kind of double oppression that black women face. Um, so Malcolm X obviously, of, of course, described um, the black woman in America as the most um, kind of the, the lowest of the low, the most discriminated against. Um, and often in stories about the world, um, there are often uh, the focuses are on stories of white men and white women or black men and white men and white women and that kind of um, uh, fight um, that, that goes on while black women are, are forgotten. So I think there is something powerful in a black woman exploring theology and thinking about God through that kind of intersectional lens and, and understanding and putting forth a view of God um, from our own context, which I think is powerful. And what we're stepping around in all of this that we haven't quite named yet, so let's um, name it now, is the whole question of power and who has it, who doesn't have it, have it and how you engage with it. Chini, have you got reflections on power and how, it, how this kind of intersects with everything that we've been talking about? Yes, I think um, um, often white women don't recognise um, the power that they have. Um, I'm thinking about the incident that took place on the same day as George Floyd's murder, in which there was um, at, Cent at Central Park, there was a white woman who called the police on a black um, man because she felt, or she said that she felt threatened because he asked her to put her dog um, on a leash. And you recognise in that incident um, that white women um, are believed white women are seen as pure and right especially in comparison to black men and um, all black women so what is it um how is it that that white women can um understand the power that they have understand the privilege that they have in certain spaces um and um instead of using that how can they potentially give that up or how can they um join forces with black women and recognize the voices of black women um in certain uh, spaces so I think we need to have increasing conversations um, between white women and black women and address some of the kind of uncomfortable uh, truths that there are that we often gloss over. Yeah, no, I think this is really important. Lucy, do you want to say something? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. And I, I think that I suppose within a church context, um, and this is where this intersectionality point perhaps it becomes very pertinent, that in a church context, because women as a whole have, and I, I suppose I'm talking about the, um, the the campaign for the ordination of women, just just to, just for the moment for that, that that's been, you know, quite a recent phenomenon. It's very easy for white women to speak primarily out of that identity because that's been the kind of bat the battling identity or the identity that has that has um, tried to overcome the, the patriarchal structure and it's much more uncomfortable for um for women in the church particularly having having been through that or going through that struggle to um 
to, I suppose to even I don't know what the right verb is to to admit to own to inhabit the the powerful um, and um, uh, and often toxic um, uh, expression of power that whiteness brings in a uh, in in a church context. So it, I think that it, for white women, this is not a conversation. This is not a conversation that is had very often publicly, white women and black women. That's why I think it's incredibly important to have it. And I think um, it, one of my one of my initial reflections, I suppose, is that um, it, it's really important to. I mean, exactly as Chini says, it's really important for a white woman like me, who's a church leader, to not only speak about the struggle, um, but also to recognise the privilege and to recognise the power. And um, and exactly as you say, to to step aside, to give it away, to to use the privilege and the power that I have as a white person um, to dismantle my own prejudice and my own assumptions um, first and foremost, and to try to speak about that as honestly as I can as part of a as part of a wider uh, resistance to uh, to a, an ideology of white supremacy and colonialism, which the Church of England is you know. It, is is clearly steeped in, um, but they are they are uncomfortable conversations, but absolutely necessary, and we must we must continue to have them. Rosemary, you've got any advice for anyone who says I'd like to have that kind of conversation, but I just don't know how. It's so difficult. Yesterday, I was leading um, a, a seminar talking about reparations and 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 whether there was a need for them. And there was a lot of people in the seminar who were having to think for the first time, women and um, and men, having to think for the first time about what power means in their own lives and their and their own the power that they have over the um, situations in which they are often finding themselves. So I I think that in every way in which I say to them, every way in which you see yourself in a situation recognize your own power and then also recognize the person that is with you in those conversations who are different to you and try to find within yourselves the ability to think outside of your box and into how they will be receiving what it is you are saying and if you do it sufficiently enough and often enough it's like everything that we exercise with we exercise we get better at it we get better at seeing God in the other, seeing, disempowering ourselves and empowering the person um, who else is in the space who is different to us so that we hear their voice, we listen to their story and that we recognise it as equally valid as our story. And sometimes more so than that, that actually it needs to replace our story because we have used our story to... Um, to um, disengage from who they are and what they represent. I think, when I think of the Bible, I was just thinking of the ways in which there are so many women of power in the Bible, but their power is countercultural. Yesterday we were reflecting on Rahab. Rahab had a powerful choice to not do, um, to not save or look after those uh, two spies. She used her power to change the story of our faith. 
that's a power that we don't often recognize and we need to put it front and center of our reflections biblically as well of the power of women the choices that they have made and the ways in which we are where we are because of the the way in which women have have been empowered to take that choice for the good I find that really um, powerful, um, Rosemary, um, to pick up on the word. Um, there's, because it's so easy, isn't it, to slip into that, oh, well, I've got no power, there's nothing I can do, and to recognise those stories um, of the women uh, who, in so many ways, um, used the power that was available to them, whatever yeah, it was, and it's that kind of absolutely. picking up on that. And, and um, I would add just to kind of just quickly that... Um, I also have power and as a black woman and as a middle class black woman. So there's also the kind of obviously the other um, uh, issues of sexuality and of class and different ways in which some, some people are more powerful than others. So how can we all, um, as we've said, we're going to recognise the power that we have? These subjects get really complex, don't they? But I think for me, one of the really interesting things that emerges is that sometimes there are questions that are asked over and over again that you sincerely wish would stop being asked. So Rosemary, is there a question that for you in this area, people ask all the time and you wish you never had to speak about again? Should the church apologize for its role in slavery and racism? I really don't want to hear another apology. I think the Church of England knows its history. It knows it's been founded on historic slavery and it needs to move on from that hand wringing persona and get on with being the church that it needs to be for this century and going forward. That is a, a multi-ethnic, multi-racial church, recognizing the past, but working to build for a just present and for God's justice in the future. What do you think, Lucy? How does that kind of feel for you? There's a difference, isn't there, between, um, uh, there's a difference between feeling sorry and actual repentance. And, um, you know, the, the biblical teaching about repentance is that it isn't about, you know, feeling sorry for something. Um, remorse um, doesn't necessarily need lead to change. Repentance is about a change. It's a metanoia. It's change of heart, change of direction. And um, I think for, so for white leaders in the church, um, the temptation might be um, to, to continue to apologise. Um, but apology doesn't lead doesn't lead to action necessarily. So I I rec I recognise that, and I think repentance and metanoia, those are the those are the fundamental, um, you, you know, they're the pillars of our Christian faith. And on this subject, we should rest on those and not simply um, uh, trust that feeling remorseful is going to make a blind bit of difference. Ginny, what do you think living repentance actually would look like in this area? So I think I want to make a slightly different point, which is around, um, I sometimes ask myself, why is it that we are still in this situation in 2021, where we're still, you know, people are still being surprised about learning about uh, the church's role in slavery or um, the fact that there is racial injustice. And I think part of the problem is um, with, is white guilt as the solution. I don't think white guilt and saying sorry um, is going to um, lead to long lasting change because um, 
it makes white people feel defensive and want to you know, apologize or kind of do these things that are um, not going to make tangible change in the long run. I think what's needed is a completely different um, outlook, which is for all of us in, and white people to recognize and white Christians to recognize that the reason why we want um, equality is because each of us are made in the image of God and are equal. It's not about white people feeling sorry for black people or people of color and letting people in. Um, this is what, what the truth is. And not only that, it's about uh, the flourishing of all of us. The world is better for white people um, if black people cannot be shot in the street. And the, the world is, is better for all of us if we um, can all be equal. So how can we kind of shift the narrative so that we're not kind of constantly just saying sorry and feeling guilty about it? Could I just say something? I think I, I was I remember doing a, a debate. Um, it was about the criminal justice system and there was a probation officer on the panel. And we, we got into this discussion about remorse and re and the 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 um, expression of remorse is one of the tests for, you know, probation officers. Mm -hmm. And um, and we, we actually talk quite a lot about just responding exactly to what Chini has said. Sometimes that can be actually a, a suffocator of change or a break on change because you feel like you've done something by expressing that remorse. And, and, you, and just speaking as a white person, I haven't done anything if I've expressed remorse. Um, it, it might be the first baby step on a, on, a, on a road which is about repentance and metanoia, as I said, but it, it actually can trick you um, into believing that you've you've joined the joined the struggle in some way, or that you've that you've um, that you've that you've made some change. So I think actually it may. I, I don't know this. I'm slightly you know, thinking as I speak, but I think it may be rather than um, a necessary moment. It could actually be a break on on change, or a or a um, a way of resisting change. Um, and so that kind of guilt and remorse is actually unhelpful rather than rather than a first step. Yeah. I don't know. Rosemary. It's, it's that conversation that we have, isn't it, about whether a person is not a racist or whether they're an anti-racist. One is just a static, passive um, continuation by saying, I'm not a racist. That's about, that's about you and your personal mm -hmm. salvation for yourself. If you're an anti-racist, you're actively working, you're intentionally working to make a difference both within yourself and for the society at large. And, that, and I think as a church, we want our church to be intentionally working in a redemptive way to bring about God's just kingdom for everybody. And we will all be beneficiaries, all of us, as Chine says, of that wonderful kingdom that he promises each and every one of us. But that's the only way to get there. So we've been having a conversation which has touched on complexity and difficulty and um, everything that's hard about um, race and gender um, and the church. I'd like to end by asking each of you, what gives you hope? Um, because after all, you are all still here, all still being Christian, um, all um, within the church in some form or another. Um, so what gives you hope to continue? I'm going to start with you, Chinny. I'm going to say the obvious thing, which is um, young people. Um, I spoke at a school, uh, primary school last summer, uh, and I asked them a question, what do they think God looks like? Um, and they I didn't say what I thought they were going to say, which was like Father Christmas, but they said 
things like God looks like a ball of energy or a ball of fire or a yin-yang sign, half black and half white hair. Um, and their creativity was, was, was amazing. And touch on it a little bit as well. And I think about the I think of myself as pretty, pretty woke until I'm in <laughs> situations with people who are 10 years younger than me, um, at, who see the world completely differently, um, who are much more focused on um, justice and equality, um, who I think will push uh, us uh, as um, Christians and the church to be much more inclusive and welcoming of all people. So I have great hope in that. Thank you. Lucy, what gives you hope? Um, I, I do feel very hopeful, but I, I think in, the, in this particular conversation, I think I, I would kind of try to frame it theologically, I suppose, that there is a there's a movement of the spirit, um, which I have the chance to join as a white woman. And um, if I can if I can join it, that will that will uh, help to make the change that is necessary in the church and in and in society. Um, and that that kind of theological trajectory, I suppose I would say, is from is from Babel to Pentecost, if I can put it like that, that there's, that there was, um, you know, the, the, the Babel story was used theologically by the church to justify the separation of peoples in, uh, in apartheid South Africa. And then there's the Pentecost story, which is, um, which is the movement of the spirit that both clarifies, so doesn't smooth things over, clarifies, addresses differences, but also invites us into a deeper connection. And I think that, that that process of um as i was saying before kind of a, there is a reckoning there is a, a, a recognition of fundamental difference there is a recognition of the uh of the inequalities of the present that come out of the past that's the spirit clarifying but the spirit will then connect us in a new and different way across all of these identities that we um that we inhabit so i feel i feel tremendously hopeful that i can join that I, perhaps I can join that movement of, of liberation for all. Thank you. And Rosemary, what gives you hope? It's that image in Revelation of all peoples coming before the throne of God, or colours, or names, or, or languages. Um, and when I say languages, there it's not the spoke, just the spoken word, the Pentecost word of language. It's the whole context of the language of who we are. We bring it all before God. We're all acceptable before God. We're all acceptable before the throne. So I hold my hope in that. And just to personalize it, when I can, um, as now a battling womanist, see young womanists like Chine coming through and speaking truth to the church and being able to bring her words to help us learn and to grow and to become better, then I think, I have to be hopeful, not for the ones that they're definitely coming along, but for young women like, like Chinny, I give thanks to God and he is our hope. Thank you, everyone. It's been a rich and really thought provoking conversation. So thank you, Chinny, Lucy and Rosemary. <laughs>